Welcome back to Second and Short. It is February 15th, 2023, and the Kansas City Chiefs are the champions of the 57th Super Bowl. So today, outside of the Super Bowl recap, we'll be talking a lot of NFL news that we got coming uh, throughout the weekend and in this early part of the week. Uh, we'll go over the NFL Awards winners, uh, some college football news for you, and then we'll talk about the Daytona 500 coming up this weekend. And then we'll hit Do You Remember? And then we will get out of here. Brock, let's go ahead and talk about this Super Bowl. It was a fantastic game. The Chiefs took it 38-35. Yeah, this was a great game. And one thing I do want to point out is I think this game would have been different if there wasn't if the turf did not have so many issues. Because on both sides, for the, both the Chiefs and the Eagles, there was so much slipping and sliding especially in the for the linemen on both sides of the ball i think it really affected the the game at the end of the day yeah it it was bad and like it's weird because they were making a big deal about this turf they spent $800,000 uh it was grown by like Oklahoma State's like agricultural school and they like brought it in 2 weeks ago put it all down and it was absolutely horrendous. Yeah, I mean, the entire game, everybody was slipping, and especially at the uh, defense at both, especially the defensive line. Uh, from what I noticed, was being affected the most. They could not, especially on the defense. Uh, uh, sorry, on the Eagle side, they were slipping and sliding all around and could not. And I think that's one of the big issues of why they couldn't get pressure on. Patrick Mahomes, but at the same time, that offensive line for the Chiefs did a great job of using that to their advantage. Yeah. As soon as they slipped, they just fell right on top of them and uh, couldn't. And when, the, you know, there's a big old lineman on top of you, you're not moving. Yeah. And, and as well as that, the defensive backs and wide receivers were just having a tough time, you know, getting to each other, honestly. Like the wide receivers, every time they try to make a cut, it slipped. So then the DB was just still standing right in front of them. Uh, a DB tries to, you know, make a, a move at a wide receiver. They slip. Wide receiver gets past them. Uh, it was it, it was brutal. And it's something that, you know, there's a, there's a high expectation for the NFL. And especially what you do for the Super Bowl. And you make a big deal out of this change and, and all this special stuff. And then it doesn't work out whatsoever we have to question the NFL and why they made that decision. You know, what does this do for the future? Is this like, you know, their little excuse to be like, oh, everybody needs to do turf fields. Uh, but like, I don't know. It, there's an expectation for the NFL that needs to be held, like they're held to. And they definitely fell short when it came to, you know, just having a, a stadium that was prepared for the biggest game of the year. Yeah, I definitely agree with you saying uh, the NFL is at, uh, at fault here um, because that is ridiculous for this to be two years in the making and they made a playing field that was this slippery and the uh, cleats couldn't grab. And it's funny you bring up the, uh, the them trying to get everybody to go to turf and that they're in the big turf company's pocket because ever since that game, I've seen probably a billion Instagram, Twitter, and TikToks about <clears throat> about the NFL getting paid off by a big turf to make this natural grass so bad. 
Yeah, uh, I'm not sure like what they were going for with this, but they made a big deal out of it, and and it just you know completely disappointed, and, and it's something that you know people are gonna 100% blame the NFL for, but hold it against them, you know, for uh, you know years to come. But uh, to get off of all of this turf talk, let's just talk about the players here. Okay, the glaring obvious part: Patrick Mahomes. He wins his second. His second Super Bowl, second Super Bowl MVP. Let's talk about the stats of the game before we get into all the storylines that come out of it because there is a ton. So, Patrick Mahomes, 21 for 27, only 182 in the air, three touchdowns, zero interceptions with a body full of Toradol. Yeah, I mean, Patrick Mahomes had himself a great game. He was very he did such a good job of being able to do with what they gave him yeah um what they gave him at halftime was most definitely just a shitload of shots in his ankle yeah <laughs> and i don't think a lot of those were direct shots cuz i saw a couple of tackles they were they were sliding so they had to jump out <laughs> to dive and tackle him they hit his ankle um but i think the Eagles uh, did not show up in the second half like the uh, Chiefs did. The Chiefs came out said, we're going to play our game. When we get the ball, we're going to do what we do best, and they did it. And, uh, again, the B- Eagles' biggest issue uh, in this game is they could not get any pressure on Patrick Mahomes, which meant he could just stand back there and do whatever he wanted all day long, which when that happens, it just leaves Travis Kelsey to get wide open. Yeah, and – you know, him getting hurt happened kind of at a, a perfect time for it to happen. Um, he gets tackled in the ankle. He, he takes a little bit to get up. He goes off the field, and luckily it, it was on third down, so they punt the ball. The Eagles ran down enough time to take it into the half. So Mahomes, on top of a elongated halftime because it's the Super Bowl, he also got like an extra 10, 15 minutes that it took after he came off the field to, you know, start recovering, get off of that foot, let it, you know, just kind of settle. And I think that that helped because then he didn't have to like re like reinvigorate the injury before they go into the half and then try to deal with it. He was able to deal with it as soon as he came off the field. And I think that helped him out in coming out in the second half and just being on top of it. Yeah, I mean, he did great. He and I, I agree with you that uh, elongated halftime really helped him. Uh, I believe get healthy, you know, be get everything back to where it needs to be. Get the the good shots, all the good, the feel good, and all that in there for him to be able to go back out and play as well as he did in the second half. Another thing uh, that really affected this game was the lack of a run game. Honestly, by both sides, I feel like the yeah. Eagles. It have was a tough. Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna say the Eagles have a much better run game, and I—I I, I mean, to me, when watching the game, it felt to me like the Eagles could not establish anything on the ground at all the entire game. Yeah, I think that Chris Jones and Frank Clark, it, it just really the entire defensive line for the Chiefs did a great job of limiting what they let Philadelphia get away with because they weren't really breaking away for the runs we see them do a lot. Jalen Hurst was their leading rusher with 15 carries for 70 yards. He got three touchdowns, but 
when it comes to the actual running backs, Kenneth Gainwell and Miles Sanders both had seven carries. Gainwell for 21, Sanders for 16, and then Boston Scott, three carries for eight yards. We're used to seeing Philly establish much more of a run game, but I think that that happens because they often get out to an early lead and they can kind of, you know, rush it away. In this case, they were up 10 at the half, and then Chiefs come out, score a touchdown, make it super close, and then, you know, they just keep getting closer and closer, and then they eventually um, get the lead, and it was like, okay, well, we can't just run the clock down because we need as much time as we can to come back. Yeah. Uh, uh, Along uh, To go on with more of the Eagles' mishaps, is the biggest thing that affect them besides the uh, having a lacking of a run game is that big fumble from Jalen Hurts at the end of the second quarter, and uh, I guess that really was their only turnover, wasn't it? Yeah, and that fumble, um, I believe it came at it like at the end of the. Yeah, I guess it was the end of the second quarter. Um, yeah, that that was kind of their big mistake, um, you know, until the hold, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, I do want to run through a couple other guys' stats from this game. So, Kelsey, six receptions, 81 yards, one touchdown. And then Jalen Hurts had a phenomenal game, 27 for 38, 304 passing yards and a passing touchdown. And then I already said 15 carries, 70 yards for three rushing touchdowns. Jalen Hurts looked phenomenal in this game, and it showed, uh, you know, through the stats and in the score. They put up 35 points. That's nothing, you know, to, to like, you know, hold your head over, but, you know, you just didn't outscore them. Yeah, this is crazy to me that the Eagles had 417 total yards of offense opposed to the Chiefs, 340, and they also controlled the clock. 35 minutes and 47 seconds to the Chiefs, 24 minutes and 13 seconds. Usually, if you see something like this, the total yards is a hundred is about what uh, 70 yards more, and uh, the time of possession is 10 minutes more. Usually, that means the you would see that and say, "Oh, that team won by 10 points at least." Yeah, it, it was wild, and that you know the big defensive touchdown really changed that. And then, you know, as well for the Eagles' offense, the receiving game was on top of it. Devontae Smith, seven receptions, 100 yards. He looked phenomenal. He was kind of doing something that we don't typically see out of Devontae Smith, which was getting completions at every – or getting receptions at every level. He was getting the short yardage. He was getting kind of that, you know, 10 to 20 yardage as well as going deep. It's something we don't see often from Devontae Smith. He's typically a bit of a, you know, catch the ball early, see what he can do afterwards kind of guy. And then A.J. Brown, six receptions, 96 yards, and a touchdown. He was a little bit more on the deep routes, but once again, still a a phenomenal game from him. Yeah, I mean, the Eagles' receiving core looked great. It's just, they, you know, it just appeared they couldn't finish. Yeah, exactly. And I don't want to say they couldn't finish because they only had two punts in the game, but, like, it just seemed like when it got down – to the uh, end zone, they could not, they had to run the ball because the Chiefs defense was locking up the receivers and the red zone. Yeah, that that secondary for the Chiefs really stepped up and they played a role that, you know, it's a tough role to play where 
you know that your defensive line is going to put pressure on the quarterback, and so you really have to be on top of your shit and make sure that, you know, your receiver, you know, isn't anywhere, like, in a spot where he can catch a ball or, you know, make a play on the ball at all. Because, you know, if Hurts has to drop back and just kind of toss one up, if your guy's open, you're screwed. Because he's got the arm to, you know, just kind of toss one out there and see what happens. And the Chiefs did a great job of minimizing the damage when it comes to those plays. Yeah, and another thing I think that affected the Eagles here was the penalty yards. And obviously the big one at the end that is total, in my opinion, uh, one of the worst calls I've ever seen. But they had six penalties for 33 yards as opposed to the uh, sorry the Chiefs with their three for 14. And those 33 yards, I believe all six of those penalties came in do-or-die situations on third downs. Yeah, it did. And, you know, speaking of third downs, the Eagles actually played very well on their offensive third downs. Uh, the, the QB dive uh, continues to be, you know, extremely successful for them. And I think this kind of poses a question of, do you think the NFL is going to kind of tweak the rules for, you know, how teams can operate a QB dive? because of how successful the Eagles were with it this season? I hope they don't because that, in my opinion, is the is the only play for uh, two yards or less. It is, I mean, really, it's, it's a little more dangerous for the nose guard in the center, but for everyone else, it's a straight-up block, and the nose, the center, is just diving forward at the knees of whomever, and the, the quarterback is going right up the middle. I mean, I, I like the play. It's it, that that one. Me, if they start tweaking that, I, I'll kind of get upset. But because I think that that's just football. Yeah, I agree with that, and and that's why I'm kind of afraid that they might make that change, because like you said, it, it is part of football, and you know, a play like the QB dive, you know, it can be dangerous. Um, but it appears that. You know, it's not like every single team is exploiting this. It's just that the Eagles' offensive line is so goddamn good at it. Yeah, uh, Jason Kelsey is probably the best center I have ever seen. He hits that to perfection. Yeah, they are all like fantastic at getting low, opening up that you know top level for not only for um, Jalen Hurts to jump over. But for the guys to come in behind and just push that pack because, you know, once your offensive linemen are low, it allows the guys behind Jalen Hurts to really push. Yeah. I, I, again, I just really like that play. It's a great for short yardage, and I really hope they don't do anything to it. All right. I do want to talk about the halftime show. Um, halftime show was solid. I, I love Rihanna's music. Uh, but I think the big thing is – that she was pregnant. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people forget is a lot of people were, were hating on it. First off, I thought it was great because I like a lot of Rihanna's songs. And second, she's pregnant, so there's very little things she can do. Yeah, like, <laughs> it was funny. Like, my family, we were all sitting in the living room, and, like, we just, like, couldn't decide for the first couple minutes. Like, oh, is she pregnant? Is it the angles? Is it the... the the, like outfit and then like finally they just showed like the right angle and it seemed like everybody in the room was like yeah she's pregnant yeah that's exactly what happened over here when we were watching i was like she does you know there's something looks a little off and i was like oh yeah she's definitely pregnant 
Yeah. But yeah, that that halftime show was solid and a little bit of halftime show stuff. Patrick Mahomes uh, after the game revealed that Andy Reid threatened to bench any Kansas City player who left the locker room to watch the halftime show. I don't blame him. <laughs> no, it's a good call. That's good coaching right there. Yeah, you that it's you're playing football games still. I'm it, I don't care, you know, that it's Super Bowl. You're still in a football game for your freaking championship. You don't need those distractions. Exactly. And then uh, you know, by the end of the game, it, it kind of seemed like the Chiefs just were the better team. And I know, like, the Eagles were obviously fantastic. This was an extremely close game, a well-fought game, and a very entertaining one. It just seemed like the Chiefs had the answer to everything that Philly did. Yeah, and again, I think it's because they just could not do – they could not, A, start the run game, uh, get the run game going. No matter what they tried, Jalen Hurts did a great job doing what he could, but between their running backs, they could not do anything. Uh, and uh, defensively, they could not get a pass rush on Mahomes. All right, well, let's talk about this holding call. So uh, it happens on the final Chiefs drive. Um, let's see. So it was a pass to Juju that um, it definitely looked like there was either a miscommunication or something. And then we see the flag fly and they call the defensive holding. They show the replay a couple times and like, look, I can see where Bradbury's hand kind of catches Juju's jersey when he kind of turns around and then where he kind of reaches out at him. And I don't really know if he actually like grabbed him though. Uh, on the spot that they kept really slowing the video down. I think that where they really called the hold was as Juju was turning, he got some jersey. Yeah. What happened was is the referee did not see the full thing. It was the back judge, and he should have been able to see the full picture. There was no real grabbing until you put it in slow motion. They had to slow it down to one frame a second to make it look like he's grabbing hold of him for a long time. It's a split second hand on the jersey, and he gets rid of it. And anyways, the pass was way overthrown. It did not impede him catching the pass. This is exactly how you're supposed to cover a wide receiver, especially one who's very quick and you have to have the angles on him. No other situation in the game would they have called that. The only reason they did it is because Patrick Mahomes was losing. I swear. So because I, I do want to say this before you know you start – saying that it was scripted for Patrick Mahomes to win. So last year, a very similar thing happened where um, it it happened to the Rams where there hadn't been a defensive holding call the entire game. And then just a a very like – it was a very like picky call. Like they've been letting it go all game, and then late in the game they decide to call it. Same thing happened here – and the big thing is that across this entire season, the average number of defensive holding calls in an NFL game was 1.4. And there was zero before this. Last year in the Super Bowl, there was zero before that one late in the game. And I think this is just a matter of like, for some reason, they're, you know, it's kind of like, okay, let them play 
and then in high pressure situations, be a little bit more picky about the flags. See, and I just don't like that because if it was something more blatant, I could see it. But this is one of those that like that he did everything right as a defender. He grabbed a hold of him a little, but he still uh, it did not impede him from catching the ball at all. That's the thing that really gets me. There is he had no he would have had no issue going eating the ball. The fact that Patrick Mahomes then proceeded to overthrow him by fifteen yards is really what makes me mad about it. Yeah, but the, you know that's why it wasn't pass interference. And, and well, I know it's defensive holding, but again, if you watch it, he's not really holding him. And I, I don't know the rules exactly, but it has to be the defensive holding is there if it impedes him from uh, going to the ball. And yeah. I don't think it did enough. I, I don't think I don't know. I think it's very subjective. You know, uh, a different ref might have a different idea of like, okay. How much do I have to see for them to call it? Because obviously your defensive back and your receiver are going to make contact throughout a play. Of course, there's always going to be a little bit of grabbing, you know, back and forth. It's just a matter of like, how much does this particular person have to see? And, you know, that ref just decided at that point that he had seen enough. I think that's where I see it as. And then, you know, James Bradbury comes out at the end of the game and says that he was holding. He, He was aware that he did it. And, you know, at that point, it's like, okay, well, what can we argue? The guy who got the flag called on him agreed that he did it. Yeah, only he only did it because he got the flag on him. He's going to take responsibility. To, but even though, I want, to see, I want the referee to have to come out and say, this is why I called it. Just break it. They basically come out and break it down. But they're not going to do that because there's no – you don't have to have responsibility as an NFL referee. I do think it would be – fantastic if like all of the refs had to like sit down in a press conference after every game yeah because i i want to know what he's thinking what he saw it doesn't matter what the replay saw all he has to say is i saw this this and this and i felt like it was and when i went and discussed with the other refs because there are two other referees in the area looking at it we all decided on the same thing yeah because you can throw a flag and other referees be like yeah that was did not happen that was not blatant whatever and they can be like, that's, you know, it's, you know, they argue about it. And so I wanted to see what the other referees in the area saw. The thing that they agreed that that was a blatant holding call. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. I want to hear more of that because, like, I know the NBA does it now where, like, but they do it kind of after the game where it's like they'll post on like the uh, I want to say it's like the NBA's like official referee or officiating like Twitter account or something it's like this call at this particular time on this player blah 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 was like a mistake or like we missed this one and it's like okay it, you said you missed it or like you said this is why it doesn't change the fact that you messed up the call at the time but you know with this one it, it's it's tough to say you know, whether he did or not, and, and, you know, whether it should have been called or not, because, you know, if you look at the rule, if he, you know, uh, does anything to impede the player from moving, like anything like that, they have to call it. It's just that, like, you know, it's based on a principle that, like, okay, well, earlier in the game you didn't call it, so why would you call it now? Yeah, the official rule is, Holding is the illegal use of hand or arm to restrain another player who is not in possession of the ball. And 
I mean, that's a pretty crappy, uh, pretty crappy um, definition, or I mean, yeah. a rule, because it's very broad and you can call it on any on it. But I just think in that case and in that situation, you don't, especially if you've been letting him get away with it the whole game, you don't, you don't throw it there because it is such a crucial down. Yeah, because that went from what a forty-yard field goal to a chip shot fifteen-yard field goal, basically. Like that, that could be the a big change in the game. And again, if he, and I, I also want to note, like then to come out for the whole accountability purpose, the referees come out. Hey, we told him you do it one more time, we're gonna throw the flag. Or you know, we've been giving him warnings all game. That's why we threw it. But there's no accountability in the NFL. So we're you know we're not going to be able to know the truth. Yeah, I I agree that we should hear more from the refs. Let's get into a lot of the stuff that just kind of comes out after these kinds of games. This is a historical game. Tons of stuff comes out of it. So first little thing, Andy Reid is a perfect seven and zero as the head coach in a Chiefs Eagles matchup. Uh, obviously, prior to his time with the Chiefs, he was the Eagles coach, and every single time that he has coached in a Chiefs Eagles matchup, he has been on the winning side. Wow. <laughs> Impressive. And then uh, this just you know brings us to all of the Mahomes things that come out of this. So Patrick Mahomes is now eighth all-time in postseason passing touchdowns. Um, Mahomes, this kind of has to do with like how well the Chiefs kind of paced the Eagles. Uh, Mahomes had a 50, 56% of his passes were out of his hand under two and a half seconds. Uh, that's the sixth highest of the season for him. And it just kind of goes to, we talked about how the Eagles are very good at running fast. The Chiefs kind of match that with their offense, and it was obviously successful. Yeah, and well, I kind of like how in the game the Eagles slowed down their offense because they knew how good um, Patrick Mahomes was. And I think that also could have been something to affect him a little bit because like we've talked earlier, all season long, they're just running down the field and scoring just like that. And now they're trying to slow it down and be uh, slow down, and be way more methodical. And maybe they weren't conditioned properly or something like that. And that's another reason uh, they ran into the issues in the second half. Yeah. Uh, a little bit more for Mahomes. So he now joins uh, quite the group uh, with two or more MVPs, with two or more Super Bowl wins uh, as the starting quarterback. That would be Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Joe Montana, and now Patrick Mahomes. Uh, Mahomes as well. He has played 80 career games. He's only lost 16 times. He's only lost by more than one possession three times in 80 games. Wow. I mean, I may not be his biggest fan, and I may think that he's has all these because he's on such a good team, but... At the end of the day, I will admit he is probably one of the best quarterbacks right now. Yeah, he he's the best quarterback in the, in the league. Yeah, I think he's the best quarterback in the league, but I like to leave it up to debate. All right. And then, you know, when you put now what Mahomes' resume looks like just, you know, through a couple of seasons, he's only 27 years old, you put it up next to Aaron Rodgers and – there's some questions to be raised. Rodgers has four league MVPs, zero offensive player of the years, one conference title, one Super Bowl. Mahomes now has two league MVPs, 
one offensive player of the year, three conference titles, and two Super Bowls. It it's interesting because you know now Mahomes has more super. Or Mahomes has the same amount of Super Bowls as Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers combined. Yeah, now, but the there's always been something off with Green Bay. They've all, they may have always had great quarterbacks, but they, as we know whether it has been coaching or something along those lines, they've never been able to finish the job. Yeah, that is true. And then, um, yeah, uh, there's something wrong with Green Bay. Just, you know, for a long time there has been. So uh, another thing, the 2023 Chiefs joined the 2001 Patriots, 2008 Steelers, and 2010 Packers in a group of teams that – were tied or outscored by the opposing team's special teams and offense and still managed to win. So that defensive touchdown was really the difference in this one. And it's kind of crazy that there's only four teams that have ever done that. You know, having such a Uh close game in the Super Bowl seems like something that would happen a lot. But, you know, surprisingly, only four teams, and it's all happened in the last, you know, 22 years. Yeah, it's just crazy to me. And I say it all the time, how one play shouldn't affect an entire football game. But in a game like this, it certainly feels like one mistake by pro- arguably the player who played the best out, out of off, out of both teams made the one mistake that cost that you could say cost it for his team. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously the blame shouldn't all go on Jalen Hurts, but no. you're right that that play completely changed the entire course of that this game like what it was um before that fumble philly was up 14-7 and then kansas city gets that touchdown philly comes right back out scores a touchdown chiefs punt it and then uh and that's when mahomes went down and then the eagles kicked a field goal to go into the half up 10 they could have gone into the half up 17 for all we know mhm yeah it's just crazy to think Again, I it's it's I I don't like to think that one play can change the entire game, but like in this situation, I think in very there are very few games I've ever watched where it does feel and seem like that one play just completely shifted everything. Yeah. Uh a little more some about the Eagles. So the Eagles are the most proficient pass rushing team to go without a sack in the Super Bowl. So, you know, the Eagles this season, you know, like one of the best, uh, I think it's like one of the highest um, third, third season high. sack uh, records, right? Yeah, they're number three. Yeah, third all time in total sacks at 70 this season. And with such a fantastic front seven, and then, you know, they come to the Super Bowl and they come out of it with zero sacks. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Chiefs, their uh, defensive line was nothing to uh, forget about as well this season. And the only sacks they were credited with was, I'm pretty sure, Jalen Hurts going out of bounds for one of them, uh, half a yard behind the scrimmage, which counted as a sack. And then I don't think he even – I think the other one was something similar to that. Yeah, because he only lost two yards on his two sacks. So I think you're right. I think one of them was him running out of bounds. Possibly the other one being – uh, was I don't fully remember. Did they count that fumble as like a strip sack? Maybe. 
That I think maybe could have been, but um, you know, nonetheless, yeah, their their defensive line was fantastic, and look, both defensive lines were great. It was just that I think Kansas City did a better job when it came to the receiving core noticing the pressure on the quarterback and getting into a good spot for Mahomes to kind of make a you know a throw out of pressure. Yeah, and I think that's I mean as we know that's what Patrick Patrick Mahomes is good at is he can make those crazy throws under pressure with the in extreme accuracy. Yeah, and um, something a little interesting. So since the year 2000, only two teams have converted 60% on their third downs in the Super Bowl, that being this year's 2022 Eagles and the 2017 Eagles, uh, which won that Super <laughs> Bowl, which is crazy. You know, in, in 22 seasons – only only two teams that have done it are the Eagles to have uh, over a 60% on their third down conversions. Um a little bit just about, you know, Super Bowl viewership came in at 113 million. Uh I believe that put them at the third most watched TV show of all time. Um but, you know, Fox was looking for an all-time viewership mark, which they didn't reach, but third of all time is amazing. Uh, I think it was the highest viewed uh, in the last six years. So uh, a fantastic job. And I, I think that not only, you know, the hype before the game of having the two best teams from the regular season in it, but also the names, you know, Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, Jalen Hurts, you know, guys like that attract people to watch as well as, you know, what goes into it. You know, Rihanna's halftime show, that brings in a, a crowd of people that maybe don't even really watch football. And I, I think that they did a fantastic job. Commercials weren't all that good this year, I'll be honest. Yeah, um, I was actually thoroughly dis disappointed in the commercials. They were just meh. Yeah, like, um, I'm, I'm trying to think. I, I kind of liked the John Travolta one. That one was all yeah. right. Um. See, I, I did like the uh, I don't even remember which one it was. It, it was like E Trade or something uh, with like the babies with the 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 huge oh, like yeah. the adult voices. Yeah, that one wasn't bad. Yeah, that was all right. Uh, the the one for uh, Squarespace uh, with Adam Driver is like a, a fantastically done from the view of like a, a media eye because. They like established all of like the key points of advertising, which just like gets me going. I love like sports media and stuff like that. And, you know, seeing an ad that, you know, kind of hits all the marks is like, I like nerd out over that stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not going to go into depth on that. I'll look like an absolute nerd. <laughs> Everybody will stop listening. <laughs> so. Let's talk about, you know, kind of the last bit of news that comes out of the Super Bowl. Uh, Andy Reid talked about the potential coaching staff changes. So Eric Bieniemy, uh, or sorry, uh, Andy Reid was talking about Eric Bieniemy was quoted uh, saying, listen, Eric has been tremendous for us. I think he has been tremendous for the NFL. I'm hoping he's uh, have he has an opportunity to go somewhere and do this thing where he can run the show and be Eric Bieniemy. But... You know, we're going to get into some news later, but, uh, you know, you guys have probably already heard about it. There's no coaching spots left, uh, at least head coaching spots. So Eric Bieniemy's is going to be sticking around for another year. Yeah. And, and yeah. 
he deserves a head coaching job. He's deserved one since that Super Bowl in 2019. But, you know, the time just hasn't come. Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, within the next year or two, there's going to be another two, three coaching opportunities opening back up. And I'm sure he'll probably get one of those. I mean, he's done great. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into some NFL news. Uh, we'll start off with something fun, a little fun fact for you. So there's only five colleges that have a Super Bowl winning quarterback and a U.S. president as an alumni. It starts off. I only would have been able to guess three. Okay. So yeah, uh, look at I, I definitely didn't know two of them. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll start off. So Michigan, uh, Michigan, of course, Tom Brady and uh, former president Gerald Ford. Um. And then next, uh, another one that's relatively obvious, uh, the Naval Academy. Roger Staubach uh, out of Navy. And then Jimmy Carter, one of, uh, you know, a Georgia native. Woo! And then Stanford, John Elway, and uh, Herbert Hoover. He's a interesting one. <laughs> and then the two that most people wouldn't guess, Miami of Ohio. Uh, Big Ben and Benjamin Harrison. And if you're wondering who Benjamin Harrison is, I'll be honest, I didn't know. All I saw was the last name on this thing, and I had to look up because I knew it wasn't uh, William Henry Harrison. But I'm pretty sure Benjamin Harrison is the one who he didn't win the popular vote but won the Electoral College. So he made a compromise with the other party that he would only run do one term, and he ended uh, – the he ended the Reconstruction era, didn't he? Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. I'm not that in tune with presidential history, but uh, yeah, I looked him up. I I want to say he was like 23rd president, something like yeah. that. And then the last one being Delaware, uh, Joe Flacco, and current president Joe Biden. See, I don't know why I know this, but for some reason, it is ingrained in my memory that Joe Flacco went to Delaware. Well, it, I don't know it was weird to me that. because I knew that he at least had played at Pitt because I've seen pictures of him in like Pitt, a Pitt uniform. And so I was like, wait, Joe Biden did not go to Pitt. And uh, so I had to look it up. And then I, I had no idea that Joe Flacco went to Delaware and like that's where he got drafted out of. Yeah, I have no idea why it's ingrained in my mind, but I've I've known that for some reason. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that was a little bit of a fun fact. Let's talk uh, a little bit of a hypothetical. Um, So, Lamar Jackson has now gotten the exclusive franchise tag from the Ravens, but uh, there's still the possibility that he gets traded. Uh, It's looking like the five teams in the mix are the Panthers, Falcons, Lions, Dolphins, and Seahawks. I don't really see Lions or Dolphins going after him. Obviously, you know, the Lions need a better quarterback than Jared Goff to really take the next step, but I think he works for now. The Dolphins, you still have Tua. I I, I don't think it's time to give up on him yet. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think the three that make this that would that make the most sense would be the Falcons, Panthers, and Seahawks. And honestly, I could see the Seahawks being fine for a while. They're, you know, just testing the water, see how much it would, what all they would lose. 
uh, to get in. But I think really the two main contenders, in my opinion, would be the Panthers and Falcons. And I think it would be a great pickup for Atlanta to get Lamar Jackson because as we've talked about before, that's the only thing they're missing when it comes to their offense. Yeah, the the offensive line was re- relatively good, especially when it came to run defense. Um, I know we had a Pro Bowler. I, I can't remember. I want to say it was Chris Lindstrom. Uh, yeah, Pro Bowler. Uh, so yeah, there's there's some bright spots right now with you know a team whose biggest problem has been the offensive line for years, and now it's just about you know having somebody they're supposed to protect. And I don't think it's going to be Desmond Ritter for too long. Yeah, he's a great quarterback right now as a bridge quarterback, but he's not a franchise quarterback. Yeah, it's it's simple. It comes down to his experience, honestly. Like, obviously, he hasn't gotten much in the NFL yet. What, he played like four games. But, you know, you kind of want a guy that played at a super high level in college and has like that, you know, the X factor. I feel like we never saw an X factor from Desmond Ritter in his time in Cincinnati. And again, I have to agree with you. It comes down to experience and all that fun jazz. But I think even a year or two in the league, he's not going to be anything better than a just bridge quarterback. As I said earlier, he's going to be good enough to get us through um, right now through just having a quarterback, having someone who's, you know, okay, can get the ball where it needs to be, but he's never going to do anything crazy. But I know I've said it before, uh, there's some quarterbacks in this draft. If we end up in a situation where we can get one, I wouldn't be opposed to it. But if we can get um, Lamar Jackson at a good deal, then I would very much like to see Atlanta go for Lamar Jackson. Yeah. All right. Well, the next thing brings us to another bit of a quarterback conversation. So it came out officially. It was around about 3.45 uh, Tuesday afternoon. Derek Carr was officially released uh, before the contract deadline. So now it kind of throws away where the Saints were at because the Saints were in a position where they had an offer agreed upon with the Raiders to trade for Derek Carr. And I thought that would have been their best route to go about it. You know, it gets his contract off the books. Now they release him. They've got to pay, you know, a a certain portion of his contract for however long it's going to go. And now he can sign with whoever he wants. And that team can save some money because the Raiders are paying the other half his contract. Yeah, that was a, a interesting call by them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, he's a good quarterback, and he's still got some years in him, so I, I am intrigued to see where he'll go. Yeah, and it looks like the Saints, Titans, Jets, and Panthers are all pursuing Derek Carr. So we'll just kind of have to see. Obviously, we just talked about the Panthers being in the mix for Lamar, but, you know, it's not a sure thing that the Ravens would let go of him. A guy that's, you know, just out on the market in Derek Carr, he's a solid quarterback, He just needs weapons, and obviously the Jets have the most weapons here. I think, you know, they're holding out for Rodgers, but, you know, the Titans, I could see Derek Carr going to the Titans. I could see him with the Saints. I just, I don't really see him with the Panthers. I don't think they have, I don't think they're really in a spot where they should go for a veteran quarterback. I think the Panthers just need a draft. 
Yeah. Um, I don't know if I like Derek Carr too much at uh, the Titans because I think the Titans just need to go for a, especially since they just got rid of AJ Brown. Uh, they probably should go for a younger quarterback and just build him up. I think the Saints out of this list, either the Saints or the Jets would be a, the the best landing spot. Yeah, for sure. But next thing that comes out is that there's this idea around the league right now that the Jets are much higher on Ryan Tannehill than most would think. Um, really? It, it's interesting. Um, I, I don't think it's a good move. Ryan Tannehill just does not work with how that offense played last year. Obviously, yeah, you'll get back your running game. Brees Hall's going to be coming back, you know, some point early in the season. If not, he'll be ready for the uh, beginning of the season. You've got receiving weapons with, you know, the offensive player of the year, Garrett Wilson. How are you going to go for a quarterback who doesn't throw the ball well? Yeah, and again, I know when uh, we said it, when he uh, Ryan Tannehill had uh, A.J. Brown there, he obviously did good. I mean, he was part uh, – it really helped get the Titans to the, uh, what, the playoffs in back-to-back years. But uh, I just don't know – I just think he's just mediocre. I just – I think he could work there because, they, like you said, they have good weapons, so that w- it, it would work out. But I don't think he's the best option. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think Tannehill could maybe work for you know a franchise that's looking to just find a quarterback for now, draft in a couple of years. I, I just I don't know. I don't think the Jets want to take on a guy like Ryan Tannehill. I, I don't think it would be. I don't think it'd be a good a uh, good decision by then. All right, but I could see it though. So uh, a new rule is being considered by the NFL uh they're you know pondering uh, a rule that would prohibit teams from hiring head coaches until after the Super Bowl I think this is a fantastic uh, idea I love this idea yeah it, because... there's so many coaches that are you know an offensive coordinator for a team that gets to the Super Bowl and the last thing they want to be doing throughout the playoffs is interviewing so, mm-hmm. you know, why distract themselves from, you know, the ultimate goal and, you know, go do interviews because it ends up you get put in a situation like Eric Bieniemy has for so many years where they get to the Super Bowl, they get deep into the playoffs and all the coaching jobs are already taken up. Yeah, and I also kind of feel like this may be that might be one of the reason he it affects him is cuz maybe hey, he says I'm not doing any interviews, doing nothing. Until the, after the Super Bowl, and all these other people are like, okay, we'll do it. And the other, and the people's opinion, as good of a candidate or better. So why wait on you if we can just go ahead and get our guy now? Yeah. Like, as of right now, every single head coaching spot has been taken up. And it that means that Eric Bieniemy had a day and a half after the Super Bowl victory to try and get a head coaching job. Mm hmm. It's ridiculous. I think that, yeah. that rule would be fantastic. And not only does this affect the coaches, I, I believe, but the players too. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, when you 
I don't, uh, no matter what level you're at, when you're a player and you buy into a coach's philosophy or whatever, and they're getting ready to leave, you don't really, you kind of feel almost like left out. Yeah. You know, like they kind of forgot about you. Like they don't like you anymore. They don't care about the team anymore. So why should you care? Yeah. I, I honestly think that they shouldn't be able to interview. I think yeah. that there should be like a hard set date because like, it's kind of like a, a, a tampering rule with coaches because, like, if you're interviewing a guy and it's, like, the first week of the playoffs, it, it, like, how is it fair for the guys that don't have time to interview and then, you know, the day after the Super Bowl, everybody gets swooped up the same way that they just missed, like, just this past year where they missed because everybody got hired. They, got, they missed it because they couldn't interview. So I think the interview start date should be the day after the Super Bowl. Yeah, I agree. I, maybe like one or two days to give those people, you know, let them celebrate, let them get home and, you know, spend some time with their family. Then they go out and start interviewing and all that. Yeah, uh, I, I think that that would help the game a lot. Uh, let's talk real quick. Uh, we've talked about Greg Olson and how much we've enjoyed him on the number one team for Fox. Great job in the Super Bowl. Him and Bur- uh, Kevin Burkhart do a fantastic job of calling these games. So at the moment, on the number one team uh, for Fox, Greg Olson gets paid $10 million per year. You know, when Tom Brady takes that job, you know, it won't be next season now. He's delaying it until the beginning of the 2024 season. Olson's going to drop to the number two team on Fox. He will lose out on $7 million per year. He'll drop down to $3 million per year just because Tom Brady wants the job. Yeah, that sucks for him. And, I mean, I know he's made a lot of money as well, but, I mean, that just totally sucks that just because Tom Brady's one of the one of the uh, biggest, you know, he's going to go down as one of the greatest of all time. And I don't, you know, he's having to lose out on seven million and go down to number two. That just sucks. Yeah, it really does. But you know, we'll just have to see. Maybe Olson, you know, switches over to CBS, takes Tony Romo's job. I I kind of like Tony Romo. <laughs> I don't know, man. He annoys me sometimes. Yeah, he does kind of do that. All right. Well, let's get into all of the coaching moves that have happened. Uh, throughout these last couple of days. So um, some news that is pretty big to us uh, as fans of this guy's work. Baltimore Ravens have hired Todd Munkin, uh, former UGA offensive coordinator, is their new offensive coordinator. Uh, Todd Munkin turned down the Buccaneers job, uh, but obviously wanted to still make a comeback to the NFL. What do you think about this move? I, I, you've talked very highly of Todd Munkin. I really like Todd Munkin, and I think this is just another way for him to try and get a stepping stone to a head coaching job, person possibly. With that being said, maybe he is just now that he's won back-to-back titles at, in college, he wants a new challenge, and that's why he's going uh, somewhere else. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great move, especially for the Ravens. Um, finding something new and fresh, you know, while you bring back Lamar. You know, hopefully it's going to, you know, influence him to stay. And I think that Munkin runs a, a good offense for Lamar. It'll allow him to he, – he has a, a good balanced offense of passing and running, and he's obviously 
worked with some of the best players that have come out of UGA in these past couple of years. So, you know, we'll have to see, but I think that this would be, you know, in general, a good move for the Ravens. Yeah, I think this is a great move for the Ravens. Again, he, Todd Munkin, uh, he is an extraordinary offensive coordinator and offensive mind. And I think, like you said, I, I also think working with Stetson Bennett being a, he was surprisingly a pretty mobile quarterback and he ran the ball pretty efficiently especially this season and I think that will uh is definitely going to be able to translate over to Lamar Jackson in the NFL with someone who's in my opinion more athletic and better than Stetson Bennett and we'll be able to see how much better this offense is going to fit Lamar Jackson yeah it'll be an interesting one to watch and then the Colts announced that they officially hired former Eagles offensive coordinator Shane Steichen as their head coach. Uh, Jim Ursay um, and, and Shane Steichen had a presser. Uh, Shane uh, Steichen said, Jim Ursay said they wanted an offensive coach, uh, knowing we were going to have to find a young quarterback to develop. Ursay said, um, the Alabama guy doesn't look bad. Steichen said, we're going to throw to score points and run to win. That sounds like the biggest Brock Garland thing I've ever heard. <laughs> we're gonna throw to score points and run to win yeah i like that i like that that is the uh, i like this guy can i work for him yeah you just ask just ask like, him politely holy... right now yeah someone give me this guy's email i've been i've been a email god recently and writing some of the best <laughs> emails get me his email i am going to email him i need i want to work for him that is my philosophy all right <laughs> well shane steichen make sure you reach out you can either dm you know brock's personal accounts uh maybe find his email reach out to him don't make don't make brock Please. reach out to you i know you're listening literally, shane steichen yeah it's literally i'll be on the lookout for you I'm bleeping your email. <laughs> Ag, that's a smart idea. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, it, it's actually we'll get to this in a second. So, uh, Washington is interviewing former Ravens office coordinator Greg Roman today uh, for the offensive coordinator opening. Once again, a great move. I don't think Greg Roman did a bad job with the Ravens offense. I just think that. Lamar was getting tired of you know the offense they were running, and the Ravens just wanted to see more, and it was time for a change. And I still think Greg Roman's a great offensive coordinator. Uh, I, I don't know how well his system will work in Washington, but I, I'm sure they can make something happen. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, that's gonna be that's gonna be pretty good for him there. He was a good coordinator, as you said. I just don't think. If, if, he didn't have the exact pieces that was working best for him in Baltimore. So, yeah, we'll just have to see. And then the Cardinals uh, have finalized a, or are finalizing a deal with the Eagles defensive coordinator Jonathan Gannon to become their new head coach. Uh, so this took up the very last head coaching spot, and now the Eagles have no offensive coordinator and no defensive coordinator. And it looks like both of these guys are going to bring some uh, assistant coaches of theirs from the Eagles to their new teams. Yeah, this is going to be very interesting to see how uh, 
the Eagles uh, head coach is able to rebuild his uh, whole coaching staff because obviously, you know, there are people like that do it all the time. One being Nick Saban, another one in recent years being Kirby Smart, seeing if he's going to be able to pick up coordinators that are just as good and be able to fill in where uh, these other ones left. Yeah, it's a very tough thing to do. You're just you just came off a Super Bowl loss, and now you're in. You're you're just immediately having to search for new coordinators. It is a tough job. Your offensive and defensive coordinators are arguably some of the most important coaches on the sideline, probably the most important coaches on the sideline, and now you're out of both, and you're coming off of a Super Bowl loss. Yeah, so this is going to be a very interesting season for Philadelphia coming up to see how they uh, can adjust to that. All right, well, the last bit of NFL news, uh, just some some early favorites for Super Bowl 58 for next season. Chiefs, Bills, and 49ers are the leading favorites for next year's Super Bowl. I mean, that all makes sense. Chiefs just won the Super Bowl. Not they're not appearing to lose anybody. The Bills again made it to the playoffs, lost to the Bengals, went to the AFC Championship. A great team, returning most everyone. Niners, the best defense, and it appears to be returning all their defense and their starting quarterback. Uh, before we get injured, will be coming back. Brock Purdy will be there, healthy. Uh, the Oh, why can't I think of his name? Number 19, the wide receiver. Debo He'll Samuel. be one healthy. Debo Samuel. Everyone will be back healthy. And so I think that's going to be – those all make sense to me. Yeah, I, I like those three. Obviously, you could throw the Bengals in there as well, though they may be losing a couple pieces in the offseason. Um, and there's plenty of other teams. Obviously, like the Eagles, they're, they might lose a couple guys. Um there's a possibility that maybe Jason Kelsey retires. It's kind of a whispering going around. Uh, not too sure of the validity of that, but yeah, they might lose a couple of pieces, but I still think they're, they're going to be a force either way. I mean, if they play even a fraction of how they played this year, they're going to be one of the better teams in the NFC. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, let's get into the NFL award winners. We'll run through them pretty quickly. So MVP, we already talked about it, goes to Patrick Mahomes. Coach of the year goes to Brian Dable of the New York Giants. He did a fantastic job. His first year as a head coach turned this team completely around. Yeah, that is very well-deserved. Yeah, he, he was fantastic throughout the year. And then the comeback player of the year, Geno Smith, uh, a fantastic season for Geno, a guy that we, you know we wrote off and he wrote back. Yeah, a uh, great way to put it there. He, I mean, he did great out there in the Seattle offense, and he looked, he just looked very good despite, you know, years of just being back up and finally got a spot and he shined. Yeah, and then Offensive Player of the Year, Justin Jefferson, another well deserved thing. You know, before, uh, you know, a couple of slow games there at the end, Justin Jefferson looked like he was going to break Cooper Cup's receiving record that he set last year. Yeah, I mean, Justin, Justin Jefferson is. One heck of a wide receiver. It is insane how good he is. And then the defensive player of the year, Nick Bosa, once again, well-deserving. You know, led the league in sacks, was kind of the best player on the best defense in the league. He definitely deserved that one. Yep. 
there, yeah, there's not really nothing you can say about these because they're all very well deserved. Yeah, and then offensive rookie of the year goes to Garrett Wilson of the Jets. Once again, great. You know, you get over a thousand yards as a rookie wide receiver in such a bad QB situation. It, it's pretty hard to go elsewhere. Now, one thing I will say about this one is I did see something where Kenneth Walker he received uh, more first place votes, but ended up taking runner up. How did that work out? So um, it, it comes down to it's kind of like a point system, I believe. Mm-hmm. So um, Garrett Wilson, probably because there was more people that put Garrett Wilson at two or one than Kenneth Walker. So Kenneth Walker probably had a couple of third place votes or, uh, you know, maybe fourth place votes that kind of pushed him down a little bit. But I do think that Garrett Wilson deserved it more personally. I think he played phenomenal, especially considering his situation. Whereas Kenneth Walker, yeah, of course, we didn't think the Seahawks were going to be this good going into the year, but he played really well because he was, you know, a primary running back for a majority of the season. And, you know, he did play amazing football, but he wasn't really like the storyline of that that team either. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And then Defensive Rookie of the Year also comes from the Jets with Sauce Gardner. This was like the most obvious pick ever. Um, you know, we, me and Luke at, at least have just absolutely said as much as you possibly could about Sauce Gardner and how fantastic he is. Yeah, he had a great season. And again, this one was the most obvious I think of any of them. I, I think they've been saying it since like what week, like five. He was going to be the defensive rookie of the year. Yeah, he, he's been fantastic. And then the moment of the year goes to Justin Jefferson for his catch against the Bills. Um, you, you know what catch I'm talking about, right? So, uh, he like goes up, pulls down with one hand, like out of the defensive back's hand to mm-hmm. reel it in late in the game. Like huge catch there. Uh, very deserving in the moment of the year. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, the only award Dak Prescott can manage to win, the Walter Payton Man of the Year. Uh, so, you know, look, thank you to Dak because the Walter Payton Man of the Year is, a, you know, a charitable uh, and, and philanthropic award. Um, so, you know, thank you to Dak for his support um, and, and, you know, what he's done throughout the year. You know, that's a big achievement. Maybe he's not doing it on the field, but... He's doing it out off the field, and that that is really what matters. His impact outside of just the football field. Yeah, I mean, I, I believe a personal belief of mine is, of course, people that you know are fortunate should always be able to give back to the less fortunate, and it, this is a very good award, very prestigious award to win. Yeah, it's fantastic. And then assistant coach of the year, Shewitt, obviously, easy money. D'Amico Ryan's. It, it was so yeah. obvious. Yeah, uh, again, another easy one. I feel like it, I've, I swear, like awards are never this. They all every time we do awards of anything, it's always oh yeah, that's expected. But like, I always feel like they're not supposed to be so easy to tell. Yeah, yeah, there was a, a lot of guys that really stuck out when it came to each category this year. But let's go ahead talk about college football. There's a ton of stuff going on right now. Uh, we'll kick it off with. Uh, the Utah offensive coordinator, Andy Ludwig, is staying at Utah. Um, so Notre Dame was going to try and pick him up to fill the uh, Tommy Reese's spot. And 
it, it just looked like his buyout was a bit too much for Notre Dame. So he'll be staying at Utah. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, good for him for saying, hey, you know, sorry. Uh, uh, money, you know, at the end of the day, it's a business. Go to where the money is. And obviously he enjoys being at Utah. Uh, he's obviously a good coordinator. So he'll probably uh, stay there till he gets a better uh, opportunity to go somewhere as a head coach. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, Nick Bolton, with his uh, fumble return for a touchdown, becomes the first Missouri alumni to score a touchdown in the Super Bowl. That's crazy. <laughs> like, you'd think that somebody would have. You know, maybe like a wide receiver, running back, kind of comes out of nowhere, just punches one in. Never happened until now. Yeah, you'd have thought, like, you know, even at least back in way back in the day when Missouri was decent, they would have. Yeah. And uh, something much more surprising, Jalen Hurts scored the first touchdown by a former Alabama football player in a Super Bowl. See, now that one is not as surprising. I say this because Alabama players tend to go in the top 10, top 15 of the draft to teams that don't really make the Super Bowl. That's fair. Yeah, and, and a lot of their players that do end up on Super Bowl teams are, you know, like defensive players or like offensive linemen, you know, guys like that. So this is, does it not count like Namath? I don't think he ever got one in a Super Bowl. I thought he. I thought his thing was he won a Super Bowl. Maybe I don't know. Maybe Reddit lied to me. Maybe maybe he was he is old as all get out. So maybe he was pre pre uh, Super Bowl era. Maybe who knows? All right. Well, I have uh, an interesting one here. So it's not as much about the fact that it happened, but the question surrounding it. So uh, unranked 2025 linebacker Mantrez Walker out of Buford, Georgia, commits to Michigan. So my first question is, why did a linebacker recruit from the state of Georgia just commit to Michigan? I think he did that just to be like, hey, I have offers in D1. People look at me. But I think he's – I know we're about to get into this, but that's also – it's like, hey, you're a sophomore. You have two more years of high school to go through. You, I feel like you're getting, you're getting a little ahead of yourself. Yeah, and so, yeah, like you said, that brings us to me – or uh, brings me to this. So how do you feel about sophomores committing to universities? You know, uh, it's so early in, in you know, the grand scheme of their football career. I absolutely – Hate it. I understand wanting to do it, but I, I, I don't know exactly how it affects the recruiting, but I, I feel like it affects it a little bit. And it's like, for example, someone, uh, there was a whole, uh, it was on one of the TV shows I was watching one time, uh, on Saint, oh, the one that Demon Clowney went to up in, uh, Maryland in Baltimore. Yeah, I don't know. That whatever that high school is, where it's a private boys' school, and there's football, and this coach came in, paid pays for everything, gets them out of bad situations, pays for their housing, and they get a better education, better opportunities for football. And Demon Clowney, for example, committed to LSU as like a sophomore, or like a like beginning of his junior year, or was still a sophomore, and then senior year comes, signing day, and LSU pulls their offer. 
So he then didn't have anywhere to go. And it's like when you've been committed for two years and then all of a sudden you decide not to or they pull their offer, you kind of put yourself in a situation. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And like, I just, I don't get it. I feel like they shouldn't even be allowed to be offered as a sophomore. You know, maybe, maybe like the end, like as soon as their sophomore year ends, like a certain date when they like officially become a junior. But, you know, if you can't sign, you shouldn't be able to like be offered. Yeah, I don't think you should be able to commit until I, I actually like that. You shouldn't you should be able to be offered, I think, but you should not be able to like be allowed to commit or do anything like that until you're a senior. Yeah, and like obviously it's a verbal commit because you you can't sign until you're a junior, but I don't know. I just don't know how I feel about this. Uh, I think it just has a poor effect on young players because, you know, you're a sophomore. You've got two more years to play in high school. You've, you know, most likely, you know, if you're already committing at this point, you probably played varsity freshman year and now your sophomore year. And there's a lot of learning to do. There's a lot of football ahead of you. And, you know, it could be, you know, maybe he's a very good kid, strong mind, like whatever. But, you know, there's going to be kids where they get an offer, they commit, and then they have two more years of football to play and they just get complacent. And and then their (laughs) offer gets pulled, kind of like what you said. Like his offer gets pulled and he's got nothing. So teams like uh, schools will pull their offers because you already committed. It, It throws a lot of things off and there's so many things that could happen over those next two years. Yeah, I, I just – and there's not only so much learning in football. There's so much learning in life and learning, okay, this is my best situation. Like, yeah, I may – you know, he may be committed to Michigan now. and He will – maybe he realizes by senior year, oh, I don't fit – this is not – you know, I may be a bit of Michigan fan my whole life, but this is not where I fit in. You know, I, I'm going to go here. The climate I'm not used to, the – the defensive scheme I'm being put in, I'm that's not who I am. That's not what I fit in. And then, you know, he kind of gets trapped there. Fortunately, now there's a transfer portal, but it's like, why Why would you want to do that to yourself? Yeah, it, it's interesting. And, you know, to talk about Michigan, since Jim Harbaugh has been the head coach of Michigan, they've only played two out-of-conference games on the road. 2015, they played Utah. 2018, they played Notre Dame. So only two road out of conference games in almost 10 years and they lost both of them okay and since 2019 they've only scheduled one power five team out out of conference it was washington at home and now for the 2023 season or sorry 2023 season they have east carolina unlv and bowling green all of their out of conference games at home. I want to make a point here, and I think anyone who's listened to this before knows exactly the point I'm going to make. When an SEC team does this, or anything similar to this, they get scalded, get yelled at, oh, this, that, the other, they're not that good, this is why they do so good every year. And Michigan gets to go under the radar like that. And then second, um, that's almost embarrassing. (laughs) Yeah, like, Come on, at least play like a season opener type game. 
teams in the SEC, the ACC, they do it all the time. Georgia, you know, some SEC team, SEC team normally plays in like a Chick-fil-A kickoff game or, you know, like Florida State and LSU did a home and away or, or sorry, a home and home where they played last year to open the season. They'll play this coming year to open the season. Like, do something to prove to the nation that you're a great team. Yeah. And I mean, for example, 2021 season opener, Ole Miss played Louisville. Ole Miss had a 2024-2025 home and, aw- home and away uh, game against Oklahoma. And then, of course, they joined the SEC, so they had to cancel the games, the whole thing. But a lot of the SEC teams are scheduling. They may not be the greatest uh, group of five – or, sorry, power five opponents. Like, uh, some of them may play like a Georgia Tech team or something, but they're still playing a power five opponent. Yeah. And, yeah, I know there's a lot of cupcake games throughout the season, but it, I almost feel like it's different because – and the SEC, there's also tends to be more teams ranked. There's more teams ranked within the top 50. There's more teams uh, ranked higher in recruiting, more teams ranked with more talent on their roster. I'm not saying that as an excuse for the SEC teams. I would like for them to play bigger and better games. I would love to see for now on, like they do in uh, basketball, an SEC Big Ten Challenge or an SEC ACC Challenge where, you know, one weekend – Every ACC team plays every SEC team, or every ACC team, or every SEC team plays a Big Ten team, something like that. So then it really just proves it goes to show. And then I know the reason they don't do that is all for the schedule for the end of the year. Yeah, because like Cause, if, if you are you know Georgia and you schedule Michigan to start the season, it's like oh shit, like you know what comes out of this? It's kind of like Georgia Clemson just a few years back. Where it was like, oh, like this is how we're going to start the season. I like that because it. I think that really. It first off, it gives the committee at the end of the year more to look at than just the record. Because TCU, granted, they did deserve to be in there this year, but let's just say, uh, I'm trying to think of a team, uh, like uh, Alabama. Well, they went eleven and two. Damn. I'm trying to think of a of another team like that. Like USC, their losses were what to Utah twice. Yeah. Who's the one loss team that got sat out at the end of the year? I don't think any did because Tennessee. Oh, they all or t- t- yeah, Tennessee ended up with two losses. Yeah. So there was no there was no uh, one loss team that didn't make it in in the Power Five. Oh well, that doesn't help my point. <laughs> but basically, at the end of the year, it gives the committee more to look at. And now I know we're going to a 12-team playoff. So especially now we're going to a 12-team playoff, I say go for it. What do yeah. you have to lose? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, with think it makes, losses, I think it makes the decision easier to make when there's a bigger chance of you making the playoff. Mm-hmm. And if you have more bigger games like that, more people are going to tune in, more people are going to want to watch. It's, you know, they love the money. That's why they're expanding, why a lot of the big conferences are expanding to 16 teams because they're getting hundreds of millions of dollars more in revenue. <laughs> like, you know, it's all about the money. And so that's what they need to do. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, you know, scheduling needs to be maybe a little bit more regulated by the conferences. Well, like I know, for example, if you go look at the old Miss schedule, 
uh, for the upcoming years. It's nine SEC teams, a Power Five opponent, a Group of Five opponent, and then an FCS opponent. So you could make the argument, yeah, there are two cupcakes in there, but like you never really know the Group of Five team, like Tulane, for example. This year they went on to the Cotton Bowl and beat USC. Yeah. And that's uh, someone who Ole Miss is playing this year as one of their Group of Five teams. So, and I think it's more embarrassing for teams like Georgia and Alabama. But again, when they are the tend to be the reigning national champs or reigning SEC champs, it's one of those. Hey, I have the title. Y'all come to me. And a lot of these places don't want to come. You know, a lot of play, people like Ohio State, like we don't want to come to you. That's not fair. But hey, if you're the reigning champion. You should want to go to them and prove, hey, I can beat them, and they're home. Yeah. All right, I'm going to skip over a couple of things uh, just so that we have uh, enough time to get through everything that I really want to get through. Uh, I do want to talk about Mike Norvell. Uh, he signed a multi-year contract extension. Uh, he went up to $8.05 million per year uh, wow. from $3.75 million a year. Uh, so it'll be good through 2029, and he is now the seventh highest paid coach in football, I really like that because they uh, Florida State went nine and three, and I believe all three of their losses uh, in close. season. Yeah, extreme. And I'm pretty sure they honestly should have won all those games. Uh, if I recall, I watched all of them, and they just made some stupid mistakes on their end. Yeah, which ended up costing them the game. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that what Norvell has done, you know, outside of just how the football team has played, but bringing in transfers and bringing in solid recruiting classes. And this year, you know, so far has been no exception. He's bringing in one of the top transfer portal classes. He's got a solid recruiting class. He's bringing in coaches that are solid recruiters, like we talked about last week. And I just think he's building quite a good thing down in Tallahassee. Yeah, and this goes back to what I've said before. Teams need to give coaches more than just two years two, three years to build up a program because it takes time to do these things. The fact that everyone expects them to be a one-year turnaround to from 0-10 to 10-0 and is insane. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, Florida State's done such a good thing. It was enough to get Urban Meyer to say that Florida State is one of the top jobs in all of college football. Oh, it definitely is. They have the reputation. They have, they have the money. They have everything you need to be an extremely successful football program. Yeah, and you know it, it is a historical program. They, though a lot of the championships have come, you know, in the last you know twenty some twenty five, you know, some odd years. It, it's a historical program that has always been a, a destination. You know, top players, Dion, guys like that. You know, Brian Dawkins. A lot of historical guys have played at FSU, and it's got quite the culture. And, yeah, I agree. It's got to be one of the top jobs in college football. Yeah, I 100% agree. All right, and then just to rub it in after bragging about Florida State, Florida, their athletics department suffered $5.7 million loss in revenue in 2022. Yeah, this all Florida's just been a dumpster fire for years. And then them firing Dan Mullen in the middle of the season uh, a few years ago was a terrible idea because Dan Mullen was a good coach. And they were expecting way too much from him and gave him no time at all. 
And then they've just been falling apart from that. They're getting some good recruits, and they have a great coach there now, but they just just keep setting themselves up for failure. Yeah, and, you know, that, that quarterback situation is not looking good down there. No. Uh, something I thought was really funny uh, that I wanted to bring up to you. So 2024 three-star safety commits to Oklahoma State, and his name, Willie Nelson. <laughs> How many times do you think he's going to get the, quote, random NCAA drug test? Probably often. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I like, I was just amazed when I saw that. I was like, this is so amazing that somebody just named their kid Willie Nelson, and now he's, you know, going to play Power 5 football. Yeah, that is super funny. All right. Well, this is some big news here. The Big 12 and its TV partners have reached an early exit agreement for Texas and Oklahoma. The schools will now owe the league a combined $100 million in an exit fee, and they will begin play in the SEC in 2024. Yeah, uh, that's very interesting. Uh, I think they're good. Obviously, they're making, I'm pretty sure it's also they're making a significant more amount by joining the SEC. But uh, yeah. yeah. A hundred mil, like a buying hundred million, is a lot. Yeah, it's it, it's going to be wild. Um, just to kind of write off of that, when the SEC announced a seven hundred twenty-one point eight million dollars in total revenue was divided among its fourteen universities for the fiscal year, uh, this distribution, excluding bowl revenue, was retained by schools for expenses. It averaged around forty-nine point nine million per school. That is fantastic for the SEC. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is what what when people get so mad about why do they put so much money in the sport out of all that crap is because the just for example in the SEC they just made fifty million dollars like holy crap that's why there's so much that goes into football stadiums football facilities baseball facilities etc because they make so much money back in the school. And then not only does it make it back in uh, at, you know revenue for all that, but also in people wanting to come to the school. Yeah, like there's you know plenty of people are you know born you know a fan of a school because of their athletics, and that's what makes them apply and attend a university. And you know for the most part, especially you know here in the South, it seems like everybody that you know went to a certain school. It was because they watched that team play football their whole, like, uh, like youth. Yeah, and one example I can use is I know when college game day first came to Ole Miss in 2014 and Ole Miss had that great season, the next year uh, the freshmen coming in, the they increased by, like, they had more, like, 5,000 more freshmen or something, like some crazy amount more freshmen come in in one year than they ever have like and ever since then it's been going up dramatic or drastically how many people are coming in uh to Ole Miss and then a lot I know from 2014 2015 they did a study and it was like a ridiculous amount like yeah we saw them on college game day and said wow that's a beautiful campus and wow that's we watched them play football that looks like something I want to be a part of yeah it's amazing just the culture of you know college football and college athletics in general drawing in students because like if it wasn't for college athletics you'd probably just go to your local school Mm -hmm. 
So it, it does make you know everything a little bit more interesting when you involve the uh, the athletics. Let's talk Deion Sanders at Colorado. He said that they will win a championship in a few years. So Brock, I kind of want to get your realistic idea of what year one looks like for Dion at Colorado. I think that comment he made, I know I'm going to go off a little bit on first. That's a very promising comment, but I think for his first year, he at least goes eight and four because I mean, he got the transfers, he's got the coaches, he's got kids wanting to play for him. He's got the recruits on top of it, but completely transforming a program takes a lot. And again, it's not something you just, you don't just overnight go from being, what were they, two and ten last year? Uh, they were one and eleven. One and eleven. Yeah, you don't go from one and eleven to being eleven and one in one year. And again, I can eat my, I might eat my words here, but I'm thinking they're about eight and four, nine and three team. They're going to run in some problems, especially probably early on. I don't know their schedule. I've got, but, uh, I've got it pulled up right now. So. They've got three out-of-conference games, and they start those three games to start the season. So first game at TCU, which I think Ooh. they'll win. They, they, you know, they're losing Max Duggan. They're losing Quinchon, uh, or sorry, um, Quentin Johnston and a couple of other pieces. I, I don't think TCU is going to be all that good next year, so we'll see about that one. And then uh, at home versus Nebraska, a team that is kind of in a rebuilding spot, brand-new head coach with Matt Rule. A lot is, you know, kind of on the up and up for Nebraska. That might be a tough one for Colorado if they're not quite ready. And then uh, at home versus Colorado State, and then the Pac-12, um, or the Pac-12 schedule: uh, Oregon, USC, Arizona State, Stanford, UCLA, Oregon State, Arizona, Washington State, and then they round it out at Utah. Um, look, the Pac-12 is a tough schedule especially when week four and five, you've got Oregon and USC back-to-back. Mm-hmm. It's going to be yeah. interesting, but yeah, I do agree. I think eight and four is a good spot. You know, I could see them losing to Oregon. I could see them losing to USC, uh, possibly Utah, and, you know, you could see them slip up against another team, maybe like an Oregon State, maybe a UCLA. Yeah, I could see them, again, they're, he basically brought in, a whole brand new team. It's going to be pretty difficult for him to get that team fully, like a, being a full team in less than a year. I mean, it, it takes a lot of time to build the community, build the team, and build the bonds. And I think it's going to be, it's going to take him a while to get that whole bond built especially the chemistry for the receivers, wide receivers, linemen, line, you know, everyone together. The chemistry is very important. And when you're getting a bunch who have never played together before and you only give them, you know, they only get one real month of practice in the spring and then they get one month to prepare in the fall. And of course, you know, they have like practices and stuff every summer, but they're not real full practices. And a game time situation is completely different than a practice. So I think eight and four is a very like would be more of a is the happiest scenario for them, the best scenario, the most and the safest scenario to guess. Yeah, I, I like that. All right, something I wanted to bring up to you: very um, weird scheduling here, a very insignificant thing as well. But a, a Division One FCS team is going to be playing on the road 
at a Division II team. It's uh, Mississippi Valley State at Delta State. How does this happen? Well, aren't they like rivals? I, I don't really know. I think it's just a weird... It's very weird to see a Division One team playing a road game at a Division Two school. That is very weird seeing the road game. Maybe that's what the, that was the deal. That, hey, we're not going to pay you as much if you want to do the home uh, home at home, you know? Yeah, it, it is interesting. Um, I just thought that was so weird when I saw it. But uh, we'll talk about this real quick. Uh, Mike Bobo will be the Georgia offensive coordinator uh, replacing Todd Munkin. Yeah, um, I Mike Bobo's done a good job in uh, some of his stints places. I I think replacing Todd Munkin can be very hard, though. It is. Uh, he had quite uh, quite the role in these past three years. Obviously, you know, winning two championships. But um, I do think Mike Bobo has the opportunity to be very successful here. He's a quarterbacks coach. He's, you know, a, a former quarterback himself, I believe. And um, he, he also played at Georgia. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, he's in a great spot. He's got a new quarterback or a new starting quarterback coming up, a guy that he's been working with for the past couple of years with Carson Beck, who I believe is going to be the starter. There's really no telling. But at the moment, Mike Bobo looks like um, – a, a a great a great fill in for Todd Munkin. Yeah, and Mike Bobo, he's done a good job coaching before. I mean, he already had a seven year stint with George as the offensive coordinator from 07 to twenty fourteen before he went to the Colorado State job. Didn't do too well at Colorado State, but I mean, I, if I recall him at Georgia, that was some of Georgia's best times. Uh, then you know he went to South Carolina for a year, and that whole thing, and Auburn, then. Back to Georgia. He's been all over the place. Back to Georgia where I kind of feel like he belongs. And I think his offense just fits Georgia. A run-dominant offense, and when, but can pass when needs to pass. I think it just is very his offense just fits Georgia so perfectly. Yeah. All right. Well, I got a couple of questions for you about some college football stuff. So I want to get your take. Do you think that neutral site games should continue in college football? Yes. Why? Um, I I just for one, it it's rare for it to actually be a neutral site. I think like for example, like Georgia and Alabama. There's enough Georgia and Alabama fans when they play in Atlanta for it to be almost fifty fifty. But like when we saw last year, the LSU Florida State game held in that or sorry in New Orleans, <laughs> it was what ninety ten. It probably, yeah. And then this year it's going to be Florida State against uh, LSU in Orlando, and it will probably be 90-10 Florida State-LSU. I like neutral site games because it's a fun experience for the players because they get to get there early. They get all the extra fun stuff. They get to do little events and things, and it gives them another trip. But also, I can see why people wouldn't like it. Because, you know, it's not bringing in revenue to the college and things like that, like direct revenue to like the community and all that around the college. But I, I, I like them. I think it just kind of takes the like the home field advantage that we really see in college football out of the game. There's a reason it's college football. They play at their college. 
I, I that's my only problem with neutral site games is that like, look if if Texas A and M didn't get to play at Kyle Field, obviously bad example because last season was horrible, but having a hundred thousand plus fans in the stadium and a lot of them being a and m fans changes the game same for any other home stadium it completely changes how the game goes and like with georgia florida being played in jacksonville it just doesn't make sense to me because obviously jacksonville is closer to gainesville but as well as that it's like okay why because they're gonna play each other Every year, one team's the home team, one team's the away team. Why put it at a neutral site when, you know, one year Georgia gets the home field advantage, the next year Florida gets it? Well, I think it goes back to one that was probably a tradition way back before, you know, college stadiums started being 60, 70, 80,000 plus. And then, like, two is like, you know, that's probably the idea of, uh, especially in like the 90s and early 2000s when Georgia and Florida were the apex of college 80s i mean 80s and 90s when georgia's georgia and florida were the two of the best teams in college football you know it was like okay let's put them in a neutral site because then there is no bias either way yeah i i see your point for sure i think i like i i i kind of like the to go here i like having rivalry games have the being played on campus but I like the idea of neutral site of like a kickoff game, a Duke play kickoff game. You have Georgia play Clemson or something like that. Uh, I, I like those games yeah. because like you're opening or it could be something really random like Georgia versus Oregon or uh, something you would not see that like no one would regularly schedule. Like Alabama versus Florida State. Yeah. Things you don't like see normally. Like a few years ago, it was Alabama versus USC on uh, the Cotton Bowl one, and I I, I kind of like it. Yeah, I, I think it's fun. Um, all right, I do want to ask you about this. I saw some interesting stuff of people writing about this. Do you prefer the BCS national championship or the college football playoff? I only like the playoff more because I can see more football. Okay, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. But I will say, there's no better trophy than the BCS National Championship trophy. They, I, they, I hate this new trophy with all of my heart. It is the ugliest thing I have ever seen. Yeah, like how do you go from like this shiny like diamond football to... The crystal football. Yeah. The to, one... <laughs> it was amazing. And now you just have this cylinder that can't stand on its own. Yeah, it is just... Freaking hideous, dude. I don't know what, I don't know how they decided that, but they need to go back and fix it. Yeah. Bring back the BCS National Championship trophy. Especially now. Well, you know, it still is given out. Is it really? I believe I saw, uh, when I went to the College Football Hall of Fame uh, years ago, they said it was, it's still given out to the, to something. I could be wrong. But I think with the new, with the expansion of the playoff, they need to bring in a new trophy. All do right. a little, do the whole rebrand. All right. I want to ask you about this. I, I think it's outlandish and it would be, it would never happen. I would like to get your opinion though. What do you think about conference relegation? So let me explain it a little bit. So the bottom teams 
of a Power 5 conference would be relegated to a Group of 5 conference, and the top teams in that Group of 5 conference get promoted. So it would be the SEC to the Conference USA, then the Big 10 to the MAC, the Big 12 to the Sun Belt, Pac-12 to Mountain West, and then the ACC to the AAC. Question, why would you have the SEC paired to the C, uh, Conference USA when most of the Sun Belt is in SEC states? Yeah, I was a little confused about that one. I'd probably switch them. Yeah, but, that's what um, I would definitely So, okay, so then SEC to Sun Belt uh, and then Conference USA to Big 12. I, I do think that it's probably because the Conference USA has – you know, had a, a couple of very good teams come out of it, just kind of like the SEC. But mm-hmm. uh, I do see your point there. Um, I don't. I think that's stupid. Now, <laughs> okay, is that's what I thought like, your reaction would be. Now, is this saying like each year, like for example, Missouri finished dead last in the SEC. They go down. We would promote uh, Troy and swip them, switch them out, so then Troy can be bottom of the league. And the SEC and Vanderbilt wins. Yes, exactly. Sunbelt and pull them out the next year. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it is too. I thought it was an interesting situation though. Because like, like a Big Ten MAC one, like that's not going to work. Like no. the team that wins the MAC is not going to contend whatsoever with the top half of the Big Ten. It, it, like like the, the closest thing I could think would be Big Twelve and Sun Belt. Like whoever wins the Sun Belt, maybe could get a couple of wins in the Big Twelve. Yeah, like App State probably could do pretty well in the Big Twelve. But to be fair, I think a lot of teams could do pretty well in the Big Twelve. I yeah. think we have super conferences like the SEC and like the Big Ten. That just would be impossible because teams like Ohio State, who have twenty five stars in their roster, Georgia and Alabama, who have thirty. Uh, against a team who has 15 three-stars and maybe a four-star? No. All right. Well, that's going to do it for college football. Let's talk about Daytona. Daytona 500, the 65th Daytona 500, is on Sunday, my birthday, and in the 75th season of NASCAR. Daytona. Biggest race in NASCAR. And as well as that, uh, it has now been 21 years since the tragic death of Dale Earnhardt Sr. Brock, I, I just want you to talk us through this. Uh, Dale Sr.'s death? It's just Dale Sr.'s legacy. Well, as we know, uh, as for most of y'all people who don't know NASCAR, the only person most people in NASCAR know is Richard Petty. Uh, probably the greatest NASCAR driver of all time. You know, you can make arguments for Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson and uh, Dell Jr., of course, or Dell Sr., of course. But, uh, you know, Richard Petty's really the only one that's like very uh, well known and popular. But Dell uh, Sr. came in uh, right after the Richard Petty era, era, sorry. And he was a very aggressive driver who was just meaner than a snake and would wreck you <laughs> if you made him mad. And he was got the nickname known as the Intimidator because he was he would race so aggressively and being so aggressive got all the fans to like him. He slowly became uh, with his aggression style and uh, doing that. He slowly became a fan favorite as well as uh, one of the better NASCAR drivers. Yeah. So um, 
you know, we always remember Dale. You know, raise hell, praise Dale. <laughs> I just, every time I see one of those t-shirts in public, I just laugh a little bit. It's such an amazing phrase. Again, I also forgot to mention, he is a six-time NASCAR, wait, two, four, seven-time NASCAR champion. Yeah. So fantastic. He tied for the most with Richard Petty and Jimmy Johnson. So he, again, can arguably be one of the best NASCAR drivers. But he, something I guess we'll get here soon is his tragic death. Yeah, if you want, you go ahead and talk about it. The next thing I'll talk about is this year's race. So Dale Earnhardt Senior, uh, again, he, you can really say he, he was part of the NASCAR's big explosion into the mainstream with all the TV publicity and all that coming at it, because NASCAR used to just be a bunch of rednecks out <laughs> back running running around in a circle, base, or driving around in a circle. And then uh, around the time he came in, the 80s, or the 70s and 80s, NASCAR started gaining more and more attention nationally through the TVs, and TVs were become, starting to become more popular in every home. And so they started coming, uh, being... Uh, getting put on TV, people started watching it more. And, you know, there's, I don't want to get too boring, but in the history, but basically one day there was a giant snowstorm and everyone got locked in and NASCAR was on TV. And that's how it gets spread to the Northeast and it gets spread all throughout the country because from that one, that big day where I was the only thing on TV, it's what got a lot of people watching it and get interested. And he was one of the big racers at the time and the, uh, starting. He started to win, uh, but like most every uh, a lot of races, finishing top five. I mean, if you look through his uh, achievements, I mean, he's a seven-time championship winner, uh, one-time Daytona 500 winner, won uh, the Brickyard, won. Uh, uh, oh, he won a bunch of the uh, Talladegas, didn't he? Yeah. I don't remember which this is all old. So I can't recall what years they all were or what races it is, but he was a very good driver. And, uh, but besides that, he was really good. He was very popular in for sport. One of the most famous drivers and his son, Dell jr. Who then became the next most famous NASCAR driver. Uh, it was, he, they were racing at Daytona in 2001 as the opener he was blocking cars, so Dell Jr. Uh, so Dell Jr. and then another person on their team, Michael or no, that, yeah, it's Michael Waltrip, right? Yeah, yeah. Michael Waltrip was in the lead. Dell was in Dell Jr.'s in second. Dell Senior's in third. He owned all three of the cars, and he was blocking to make sure they could finish top three. It was going to be the first time ever three, uh, not, three racers of the same team would have gone first, second, and third. And while he was blocking, he was uh, got a little too close and got a hit in the back and turned and went straight into the wall. And at the time, they just started, came out with technology for the, uh, basically, it was like, an, what would you say? It was like a neck brace, basically. Yeah, it, it was like a, it kind of like held them in by like the seat as well. Uh, just yeah. to reduce the amount of like whiplash and, and things that it get affected uh, in a crash in NASCAR. Yeah, and he went straight into the wall, and as he was going, 
what was it like 170 miles an hour yeah and a straight right turn into the wall and he was at this time they didn't make it uh they didn't mandate you to wear these safety harnesses and since he wasn't wearing the safety harness he threw forward and he died and he died on impact and it, it was the very last lap of the Daytona 500. Michael Waltrip won the fir- finally won his first big race, and Dale Jr. took second. It was very tragic because he was, especially at this time, he was finally becoming a very well, like a very nice love. He was finally not being such a mean person to everybody, and he was making a big care changes, becoming everybody's favorite. But then he uh, got in the wreck and died, and. He's known as one of the best racers of all time, if not the best. Yep. Turn three, man. Turn three. And it's funny that he died two years before we were even born, and yet we know so much about him. Yeah. Yeah, truly a a legend of a sport that's very underappreciated. But let's talk this year. Um, The favorites right now. Uh, at the top three, Chase Elliott, Denny Hamlin, and Ryan Blaney are all plus twelve hundred to win it outright. Uh, I'm I'm a Chase Elliott guy personally. Chase Elliott all day, son. All right, and then last year's winner, uh, Austin. I, I never know how to say his name. It's either Cindric or Kendrick, but it's C I N D R I C. He's last year's winner. He's right now at a plus twenty five hundred to win. And Brock, who's your pick? Oh, Chase Elliott all day. All right. Yeah, that's who I'm taking. Chase Elliott. Uh, well, I guess he's not a young racer anymore. He's been in there since, I want to say about, what, 2016? Yeah, he's been going for a little while. But he also came in early. I mean, he's only 27 years old. And he, I mean, he's, he came in and just, um, I mean, he's the son of another very famous NASCAR driver, I think uh, Bill Elliott, thirteen time in a row, most f- fan favorite. <laughs> yeah, uh, he, but he came in and uh, he started racing in for the Little League NAS- NASCAR in like twenty eleven. Yeah, twenty ten. He's been going for a while. Yeah, he he started like the the young league of NASCAR and worked his way up, and then he's I think he started racing uh. Let's see. He started racing uh, in the big leagues in do do do. If it can tell me, 2015, and then he just started winning. Yep. So I, I think he he's got it. I believe in him. That's my boy. <laughs> All right. So we've both got Chase Elliott to win the Daytona 500 on Sunday. Uh, I'll definitely be watching. It's on my birthday. I got to. All right. You have to. Let's get into Do You Remember. We're going to run through it a little bit quick just so we can get out of here. But, Brock, do you remember November 24th, 2018, Kyle Field, College Station, Texas, 101,500 spectators coming in to watch Ohio State transfer quarterback Joe Burrow and number 7 LSU come to town to face number 22 Texas A&M in one of the longest games I've ever watched. The final being 74-72 to 72 in 7th overtime. 
Yeah, I believe that is the second longest game in college football history. That game was insane. And I still believe Texas A&M won that by basically by referee decision because they got tired. Yeah. It, I... it Honestly, this game changed a lot for college football in general. Um, after this, um, I think after, like, right at the end of the season, they made the new rule, uh, I believe, what, it's after two or three overtimes where they, all, like, all they do is go for two-point conversions? Yeah. I and believe so. So in this game, like, every single drive, they were going for a touchdown. So there was only, uh, it was 31-31 in regulation. Um, first drive of overtime, LSU, 50-yard field goal to take the lead. Texas A&M comes back, 23-yard field goal. All right? A&M starts with it for the second overtime. Touchdown, extra point, 41-34. LSU answers, same thing. They go to third. Uh, 25-yard passing touchdown from Joe Burrow to Justin or, um, to D. Anderson. Justin Jefferson gets the two-point conversion for him, 49-41 LSU. Kendrick Rogers receives a touchdown from Kellen Mond. 49-49, end of the third overtime. They go into the fourth, two field goals. They go into the fifth, two touchdowns. Both two-point conversions are failed. Sixth overtime, touchdown AM, two-point conversions good. Touchdown LSU, two-point conversions good. Seventh overtime, Joe Burrow, 10-yard rushing touchdown. They fail the two-point conversion, Texas A&M. 17-yard passing touchdown from Kellen Mond, and they get the two-point conversion to win it, 74-72. Yeah, that was, I remember, I was with my parents and family, and we stayed up all night, and we were like, could this game be any more crazy? Yeah, like, this game started at 7.30. Well, it, it didn't come to an end till midnight? think later than that yeah i I could be wrong but uh it felt like it took to like 1 2 a.m yeah i i I remember because i was actually at uh, a friend of ours house and i had no idea this game was going on i wasn't really paying attention to the games that day and i get a notification on my phone like we're all about to go to bed and it's like Texas A&M pulls off the upset victory over LSU in seventh overtime. And I'm like, what? Yeah, that was insane. Yeah, and like the the players on this LSU team are the same guys that led them to such an amazing season just the year after it. Joe Burrow was the quarterback. Clyde Edwards-Alaire was one of the running backs. Um, they They had Justin Jefferson, Foster Moreau. Jamar Chase, uh, just tons and tons of fantastic players. And, you know, a couple guys on A&M as well. Um, oh. I believe Robbie Anderson had that insane catch where, like, I thought his knee was, like, torn, and he's, it somehow wasn't. I I think Robbie Anderson was already gone. Um, trying to Maybe I'm thinking another game. Yeah, I'm not sure because Robbie Anderson, I don't think played in this one. I think he was already in the league, but um, yeah, just fantastic. And, and it's crazy because like the the statistics weren't insane 
really for anybody. Like Joe Burrow had a really good game, 270 yards, three passing touchdowns. He also had 100 rushing yards, three rushing touchdowns. A fantastic game for Burrow. Kellen Mond, 287 passing yards. He threw for six touchdowns. And then AM's running back at the time, Trevion Williams, 198, two touchdowns. This game was just ridiculous. Yeah, it just so much scoring. And that's just something that is so weird to see in the SEC is a game that goes that high. Yeah, it, it was wild. All right, Brock, what you got for Do You Remember this week? Mine is a very recent memory. It is Do You Remember June 26, 2022, when Ole Miss baseball hits back to back to back home runs to knock to help knock off Oklahoma in the first game of the College World Series Finals. I sure do, because you were lighting up my phone. TJ McCants <laughs> comes off the bench after really not playing at all. First at bat, I believe it's the second pitch. He gets up there. Oklahoma's ace is on the mound. He's at around pitch count 100, I believe. Gets up to the bat. I think it's the bottom or top of the seventh. He gets up there and just hits a freaking nuke right out of there. And I just was a whole, it was insane. Brawl energy back to Ole Miss's sidelines or back to Ole Miss's dugout. Next batter up again, second pitch, hits it freaking gone. And then we go, no way we can do it a third time. Now everybody's on the edge of their seats. No way we do it a third time. Gets up there. Pitch number three comes up. Freaking sends that baby out of the ballpark, puts us up, and from that moment on, everyone knew Ole Miss was winning the College World Series. <laughs> hey, dude, that that game was ridiculous. I like. I remember you just lighting my phone up. I like turned it on immediately, and I was just like amazed. Yeah, that was also the game in which. Uh, Oh, what's his name? Was it? It wasn't Derek Diamond, was it? Oh, I have his name wrong now. I think. I can't uh, think of who it was. It wasn't. Oh, freaking a! Let me go down to here. It is. Because uh, we had a Jack Daugherty. He was a reliever mostly for most of the year. Uh, both our ace. We just pitched in the day or the day or two before. Uh, everyone in the rotation needed some rest, so we put in. Uh, a, a guy who kind of had some starts before but never really was great as a starter, had some great success as a reliever, put him in. He threw uh, – he had a perfect game going into the sixth inning, I believe, and he retired the first nine batters. Uh, go, it was He set a, a World Series record. He had an amazing game. And, of course, once the stupid announcers – they, the announcer said, "Like, oh, how long do you think he's gonna be able to keep a perfect game going?" And he gets a hit, <laughs> but every single time. But yeah, it was so amazing. Ole Miss again. I'm I'm not gonna say we were like counted out because we were the number one seed or number one team at one point last year. But they were able to get hot when they need to get hot. They were the very la- they were 64 of 64 teams in the world in the world or in the tournament and they were able to go all the way and win the series 
Yeah, uh, a fantastic team and a fantastic way to kind of preview college baseball. Uh, get started on Friday, and uh, you best believe we'll be talking about it throughout the year. You best believe I'll be in right field at uh, Oxford University Swayze Field Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. All right. In plan. <laughs> well, look, look for Brock in right field. <laughs> yeah, they know the beer towers in the forecast. All right. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. Brock, anything else you've got for the people? No, uh, not really, but I'll, I'll actually I do have some. Bay opening weekend, everyone best go cheer on their baseball team and everyone best go watch NASCAR on Sunday. Bring, make it America's great sport again. <laughs> all right. And um, just just remember, for all the football fans, you've only got 207 days to go. Hey, XFL starts next week. Yeah, if, if you want to – or is it the USFL? Which one is it? USFL, one USFL, of the two. USFL, yeah. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll probably watch like two games for like yeah. five minutes. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but, you know, who knows? Maybe Maybe I'll find somebody to cheer for. Yeah, I guess we'll have to find someone because I can't not watch sports. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get out of here. We will, or I'll catch y'all on Friday. Peace.